0: Welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow here at Cato.
1: And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow at Cato.
0: Today, we're broadening our focus to look not just at one country, but at a whole region. We'll be discussing America's future in the Middle East with our guest, Brian Catulas. Brian's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and has extensive experience studying and working in the Middle East, including stints at the Departments of Defense, State, and at the National Security Council. So thank you for joining us.
2: Great to be with you.
0: Um, As always, let's get started by talking a little about some of this week's news. Um, And I should say that we're recording this perhaps a couple of weeks ahead of where you'll hear it. So we're going to try and talk about general news stories. Um, and I think one of the more interesting stories this week is that a group of lawmakers, um, including Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, are proposing legislation that would uh, pre-constrain the president's ability to start a conflict on the Korean Peninsula, and particularly a nuclear conflict. This seems like kind of an interesting approach.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think if, if you think about uh, President Donald Trump and you think about his experience as a businessman. And as a businessman who who actually went through bankruptcy, in many ways, I think uh, Republicans and Democrats look at uh, this president as a as a administration that needs to have its foreign policy placed in re- receivership, if you will, in, in in strict oversight, in the way that a bankrupt company actually is. And and this is not a partisan statement. You hear concerns uh, from Republicans and Democrats alike about not just the president's mercurial nature, but but his inability to to, to actually execute. Uh, A policy that actually advances stability and and U.S. interests in in the long run.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, you hear that sort of on a daily basis, this notion that there need to be more responsible adults and more, uh, you know, boundaries set uh, for Mr. Trump. The the question I have, though, is is what kind of pre-constraints that Congress might impose are realistically going to actually burden Mr. Trump if he decides to go sort of full, you know, crazy
2: and it, and it doesn't seem like this and I know we're recording this a bit early but he, he'll be out in the uh, in Asia uh, for about a week and a half um, and uh, as I understand I think we're sending a third nuclear-powered aircraft into the region as well and what we've seen over the last 30 40 years has been this expansion of executive authority the ability to take action without much oversight from from Congress so uh, I haven't read the legislation I think the instinct seems good to try to constrain it's sort of like when you take your Kid uh, bowling, and you want to put those sort of bumpers up so he doesn't roll a gutter ball. I think that's what Congress is trying to do here. But uh, uh, Trevor's right. What what impact will it actually have, given that we've had this uh, supercharged, you know, presidency, not only under Trump but executive authority being able to do so much?
0: Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Given Congress's sort of abdication of its responsibilities with regard to war powers in recent years, I mean, it almost seems like we are trying to move into a situation where right. Now now, the president sort of tries to lump in everything under the 2001 AUMF. And, you know, sometimes it seems like it's justified. And so they're at least nodding to the idea that Congress has given permission. But if they were to put something like this into place and Trump took action, that would be just a clear violation of he doesn't care what Congress thinks.
2: No, And I think that's pretty clear. He on, on many issues, he doesn't care what Congress thinks and that should scare a lot of people. I think another thing that worries me when it comes to this issue of congressional versus executive authority, when you have members of Congress like we heard today, Senator Lindsey Graham saying that the individual who conducted this attack in, uh, on October 31st in Manhattan uh, should be charged as an enemy combatant. And again, this is somebody who is on US soil and when you think about what the lesson should have been that we learned post-9-11 about Guantanamo and detentions and other things, it certainly shouldn't be we should have more enemy combatants uh, because a lot of these people have not been brought to justice.
0: Yeah, no, this is the thing because it's an entirely... Fascinating conversation that we should probably have a whole episode on at some point. But uh, let's let's move on to the second issue of the day, and that's the uh, the specter of secessionism is is haunting Europe, um, and in particular, we've seen the government of Spain moving to reimpose direct rule on Catalonia following this contentious independence referendum. Um, it does sort of seem like uh, secessionist movements are gathering steam over there.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is um, you know, it's it's sort of a strange timing it does, it's not obvious to me why now exactly but um, it's it's obviously um, in maybe Brexit uh, sort of stirred some additional hopes and dreams uh, elsewhere but uh, I think in both cases sadly um, because I think you know both the Kurds and the, the Catalonians have good arguments for greater independence but uh, in both cases I think they miscalculated uh, and picked a, a sort of a strategy uh... that is not ready to work at this time
2: and i see the situation in in spain uh, similar to what what the Kurds are experiencing, but also similar to what's happening uh, inside of Europe, which is a crisis of confidence in democratic structures, a crisis of political legitimacy, in some ways. Um, and 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 I think all of this does relate to what what has been a growing incoherence in terms of the internal politics of many democratic uh, countries. And then there's a there's this broader trend which we talk about all the time here in Washington. But it's not just Russia; it's also China. It's the the very assertive involvement of authoritarian powers using very sophisticated tools to try to um, spin up sort of divisions in societies. I think in some ways it's overplayed, um, but it certainly is actually a factor um, and a structural factor in, in geopolitics today.
0: Yeah, it's interesting um, because, you know, from my point of view, I sort of look at it and say, well, those divisions were there anyway. And you're right that that countries like Russia can exploit them. But I I think, you know, growing up in in Scotland, I'll tell you, Scottish independence uh, as a sentiment has been around for decades, but it's always been a fairly marginal thing. It's never really been successful. And it was only in the run up to the independence referendum a couple of years ago that we started to see larger support. And I think that does have something to do with what you're talking about here, this crisis of confidence in Western democracy. Some of these movements have been around for decades but they're getting more attention now partly because of Russian meddling and partly because there are these societal problems um, that, that people aren't seeing solved.
2: Yeah, and I think as Trevor said, it's partially, I think, related to Brexit and some of the economic issues and the certain sense of we're at a phase in globalization where a lot of people felt like they were left behind, but then there's a related issue, which is this rise of us versus them identity politics, which I've seen, you know, from India to Israel to Europe, and now we see here in the United States. And in some ways, you know, some of that is healthy if it's channeled into positive sort of clear-eyed thinking about solutions, but a lot of it right now feels like it's just angry lashing out against the other and defining the other in ways that are unhelpful that actually uh, accelerates this, this, uh, the, the divisions inside of societies.
0: Well, uh, uh, shifting topics again but perhaps staying within the realm of, of nationalism. Uh, Chinese con- uh, The Chinese Communist Party Congress just wrapped up um, and they did some really interesting things this time. They enshrined Xi Jinping's name and his vision in the constitution. That's something that's only previously been done for Mao when he was alive and, and Deng Xiaoping after he, he died. Um, and in his speech at the conference, Xi Jinping spoke of a new era in Chinese politics, and, and this was the thing that really got to me. He spoke about the reemergence of China as a global great power. Sort of seems like we missed this in the middle of all the Trump madness.
1: Yeah, I think uh, China m- maybe is just saying, raising their hand and saying, "Hey, d- don't forget, um, we're here and we're uh, we're big, and <laughs> we're going to be number one for a long time." And you might want to pay attention again after you're done with all the silly stuff over there.
2: Yeah, I I went to Beijing uh, the last time in uh, spring of 2015, and I went with the Center for American Progress delegation uh, headed by John Podesta. He had just come out of the White House, and it was before he became the campaign chair to Hillary Clinton, and he was there to follow up on some discussions on the climate agreement. There was this climate agreement, but we were there also to talk about Middle East. Um, And what struck me, big picture point, was that uh, in China, they were thinking about the next 100 years, and building things and building things globally whereas the region of the world that I've focused on a lot is thinking about the last thousand years and blowing things up Um, and, and it was quite a contrast and when you think about China's steady march and the steady rise I actually feel like Uh, A lot of focus these days, understandably, is on Russia. I I see Russia more like a troll power. It has been trolling in in many ways and trying to undermine its adversaries but not offering a, a clear alternative model, whereas China does present itself. As this alternative model, one that I don't agree with, one that is uh, much more authoritarian but talks about uh, economics and projection of economic power. But it's, I think, a steadier, uh, slower game that I I frankly think many U.S. administrations, especially this one, don't really know how how to deal with.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, because Russia is a declining power. No matter what it may look like, they're actually not as threatening as we might think. But China has been, as as Trevor says, very quiet and, and sort of this seems to be them finally starting to assert themselves. Yeah, a little if you, more if
1: you look at Chinese uh, public opinion they, they're feeling very assertive these days very confident in the Chinese project and I think this you know their foreign policy in, in their near border regions and so on is a good reflection of the fact that they feel much more comfortable exerting themselves on the world stage than they ever have and Brian you mentioned uh, the various sort of massive infrastructure projects that they're planning and proposing and implementing around the world and you know Middle East Africa and so on um, th- these, are, these are folks who are very serious about you know uh, making a difference uh, on the world stage the thing that troubles me is that um, to go back to the the party Congress is that unfortunately you know sort of this cult of personality that they're enshrining it tells you that uh, in some ways less has changed in China than you might have wanted to see. All the economic progress has not translated into much liberalization when it comes to, Um, you know, the way they imagine people should rule themselves. And so, you know, I think that's bad news long run for the rest of the world because to the extent that China can impose or show that as a role model, I think that's unfortunate.
2: Trevor Burrus Yeah. And I I completely agree with that. And if you look at the uh, excessive crackdown on freedoms at home, it it does uh, sort of belie the confidence that it has when it projects power overseas. It also relates to the point we were talking about in America and in other established democracies. I remember President Clinton actually selling the case for bringing China and the WTO and permanent normal trade relations, and I actually think we haven't had as much of a debate about that and the implications of it and what it, what it means. Uh, because this model, this hope that many people had that if you bring them onto the economic grid and globalization, it would produce some sort of change internally, just turned out not to be true, and it actually also hurt, uh, hurt, hurt uh, many people in the United States you know, in terms of the economic structures and other things.
0: Yeah, the failure of a modernization theory for those who study comparative development. Um, so, well, on that happy note, let's let's move on. Um, and before we get to our main topic, I want to ask you our surprise question of the day, which sure. at this point's not really a surprise. But I'd ask you, you know, what what do you think the most overhyped threat to the U.S. is, and what do you think the threat is that's there, but we're not really talking about
2: it. Uh, I think it's it may be odd in terms of overhype to say this the day after a terrorist attack in Manhattan, but when you look at sort of the basic statistics of what makes Americans— Unsafe and what makes, you know, what is a real threat. It is not Islamist uh, terrorism, um, which is the thing that we dedicate hundreds of billions of dollars each year to defend against. Um, uh, Yes, there are threats out there, but to put it in proportion, I think, you know, there were 30,000. Uh, total terrorist attacks globally in the world and about 75 percent of them were in, in ten countries concentrated in 10 countries um, so far few are Americans are, are threatened by this uh, issue but uh, the way it's dealt with in our politics the way we, we react to tragedies and, and awful instances like yes uh, the attack on October 31st in Manhattan um, it sort of a knee-jerk response uh, where we dedicate far too many resources and not to the things that I think are under-discussed. Look, I I think the the things that actually do kill Americans, I consider a national security threat. The opioid crisis and gun deaths uh, kill about 100,000 Americans each year, 100,000. That is a public safety and national security crisis that has some foreign policy implications, especially on drugs that come into this country. And a second, I think, uh, under-discussed challenge or threat. It's out there. It comes every few weeks. We see some sort of hack or things like this, but cybersecurity, I actually feel like, is somewhere in our consciousness as a a genuine threat, but we in the foreign policy realm have not really married up with the internet security folks to think about how this is actually altering the state of geopolitics, how it's changing the nature of state to state relations, how it's accelerating um, national security crises and actually leading to the sorts of things that we talked about in, in democracies, a greater sense of disarray and disunity. Um, so These hacks and hacktivists and countries uh, backing them actually have had a huge impact on geopolitics in a way that we haven't yet uh, strategically absorbed um, and haven't even begun to think about a effective poli- policy response to.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I think there, there really just aren't good models for understanding how we study this, talk about this kind of thing yet. Um, so so thank you for that. Um, let's move on to our main topic of the day um, because your expertise is in the Middle East, and I, I want to make sure we spend a lot of time on that. Um, Where to start with the Middle East. It's uh, certainly pretty messy at the moment, has been for a number of years. Um, And I was interested to hear that you're working on a project on what you described as drivers of regional instability. Um, And so so let me just start by asking you, what do you think are the region's main problems? What is driving instability today and perhaps in the future?
2: Well, this is not going to be a shocking headline because we've been told this years uh, ago, but the drivers of instability in the Middle East are endemic uh, to the region. It's the lack of investment in uh, so, social and uh, economic and educational futures. So if you remember the 2002 Arab UN Human Development Report, uh, which came out, there are a whole list of challenges that I think have bubbled up and threatened the state system uh, in the Middle East. Um, and it's, it's not the usual sets of factors we think about, terrorism or ISIS, or even some of the uh, states in the region like Iran. It is these uh, crushing demographic and economic challenges that, again, the UN Human Development Report of 2002 highlighted and 15 years later. It's gotten worse. So, uh, Center for American Progress is doing this project with the American Enterprise Institute. It will produce a book next year. We've been traveling the region together and it's less about what should the U.S. do. That's what most of these think tank <laughs> um, uh, reports. It's more looking at the region as it stands on its own. and what. Uh, what can be done to actually promote greater stability that is organic, that is not imposed from the outside, that is certainly not uh, the result of some sort of military campaign. Um, and, and and a lot of it comes back to a, a lot of the basic things that help make societies tick. Do you have educated, an educated populace? Do you have a legal system that works? Do you have governance? Uh, do you have anti-corruption measures? Those sorts of building blocks, which we don't talk about anymore because I think Uh, The Bush administration and its freedom agenda discredited a lot of it and its execution really still are are at the core of the challenges in in many of the uh, top countries in the Middle East.
1: Yeah, my insights uh, into Middle Eastern politics are not many. However, um, one of the things I do know from some work I've been doing is just how young the Middle East is as a a region. Um, You know, 50% or more of most of the Middle Eastern countries are, you know, folks under 30 and when you have a youth bulge like that, you put such a strain on society to absorb those folks into the economy, into society because they're different from their parents and their grandparents. They want to do different things. These kids are growing up in a globalized world with very different pictures in their heads of what should be normal and what they might want for their futures. And they're clashing with these very authoritarian governments who are not interested in you know, making allowances for these things, and so you know, I thought the Arab Spring was sort of the the first big um, you know sort of um, hole in the in the dam. Um, do you, Do you think there's a, a bigger hole coming? Is that Is that where these instabilities are going or is it just going to sort of continue being messy forever?
2: I think it's inevitable. I mean, it's seven years after the Arab uprisings began in Tunisia and then in Egypt, um, more or less. And um, the structural factors have not changed. What we've seen, especially since 2013 or so, has been this— you know, it's like the empire strikes back. This this uh, author- The authoritarian states are clawing back very aggressively and pushing back against any openness in places like Egypt um, and other places. But it's not all grim. You look at Tunisia or, for instance, I'll tell you a story. Uh, Michael Rubin of A.I. and I were in, were in Morocco and we were doing this. Um, um, uh, a round table about 50 college students in Rabat and we asked this question of how is your parents' generation how is your generation different from your parents' generation and uh, this woman with uh, a head covering said hey we've got uh, gay and lesbian people here and we talk about it and we debate uh, what that is and then they proceeded for 20 minutes to actually fight with each other about how open it was but the debate wasn't it, it, like there was a debate it wasn't like you know uh, as, as in parts in Syria or maybe even Iraq where they're throwing them off off of buildings um, um, um because of their identity there, there was I think a broader acceptance of, of freedom so I think the you know the previous decade when the U.S engaged largely with a focus on electoral processes and trying to tie our global war on terror to a freedom agenda, it was bound to fail um, and it especially failed in places like Iraq uh, where we had too, too much of a militaristic approach. But, th- you know, I think there are other ways that we can seek to engage uh, because there's still fertile territory for change. People don't like living in uh, authoritarian societies where there's injustice and we're not going to be the agents for that. But we shouldn't um, be in the way that I think President Donald Trump has, sort of standing back and letting it all be. I think we need to actually think of new modes of engagement that are largely in the non-military space that aren't expensive, that actually can pay dividends in the long run because change is is inevitable in that part of the region. The question is, do we want it to move forward or do we want it to go back a 1,000 years like some of the groups like ISIS wanted to do?
0: Yeah. Uh, so I, th- I think this actually is a really great pivot into ernick's question, which is, you know, what is the U.S. role in all of this? As you say, our role in the last 10, 15 years has been pretty heavily military. And yeah. even though we, we often paid lip service to this freedom agenda, the idea that we were spearheading democratic processes, um, we, we've often fallen back on the military option. Um, and in, in many cases, I would say probably prevented uh, freedom and liberty from actually growing in some of these places where we've intervened. So, you've referred to uh, America's role in the future in the region as being a security integrator. Perhaps you could explain, you know, what do you mean by that? What is this role?
2: Yeah, and that, I think, comes from a phrase from a report we put out about a year ago called Leveraging U.S. Power in the Middle East, um, and I did it with some uh, colleagues, and, um, uh, uh, and it was an attempt to sort of look broad brush. At what the role of the Middle East, uh, U.S. should be in the Middle East, and if you look at it since since the 1980s, essentially we've been sinking ourselves m- more deeply in, in terms of a security and military footprint, and in superficial ways, trying to, you know, create incentives for societies to perform and change in the way that I think is very important. Um, and I think the thrust of where America should go is to continue to step back um, from trying to. Uh, basically control outcomes because we can't in the Middle East, and take the energies which are largely negative of many of our closest partners, and then certainly our adversaries, and try to focus them more on what is a sustainable security system look like. And I mean that from a military sense, but I also mean it from a human development sense. And Again, the, here we're talking sort of fantasy land under nine months into the Trump administration, because. What I'm talking about is normative, what I think would be ideal. It's not going to happen under President Trump. We can conclude that already that—and then based on my visits, especially the last few weeks uh, to, to some of our closest allies in the region, they're already starting to discount our presence, meaning—and you know, it's not just the gap between what they hoped we would do and what Trump is actually doing—it's they see the disarray inside of the Trump administration. Um, so, so back to the secu- security integrator point is that we should try to instead of just giving handouts and selling weapons and security training and assistance, we should do it with a strategy that has it has a goal of the U.S. actually. Uh, fading back a bit and letting others try to take control of their own destiny. That should be the goal. And Unfortunately, I think since the Carter Doctrine of the 1980s, we've been on autopilot and sort of all in and more deeper and deeper and lo and behold, the region is actually not structurally all that safer
0: couldn't agree more with you, honestly. I, I give this lecture to our interns once a year, and it, it basically is it's sort of just a history of mission creep going back to the Carter Doctrine. If you actually look at troop numbers in the region, for example, in the Middle East, you basically see that every every year since the end of the Gulf War, we've pretty much increased our commitment across the board in the region. So so I, I agree with you that this is a problem. Um, but it does seem that there are perhaps some inherent tensions in... the. the the approach that you talk about in basically trying to work to improve outcomes in the region, um, perhaps on a humanitarian side, on a development side, um, while maintaining security cooperation of of some kind.
2: Yeah, I I think it's hard to do. And I think sometimes in our debate here in Washington, and especially in Congress, it's presented as an all or nothing uh, prospect. And the theme of this report, and again, it guides a lot of my work, is that the U.S. actually has a lot more leverage that it just leaves on the table and especially with some of our closest allies. And It's not just human development and soft things like this. It is driving towards a diplomatic resolution to conflicts like Yemen or Syria and places like this where we need to marry up our security tools. And That is the leverage of our security tools, not only just giving it away um, to, to, to close partners and allies, but having those important conversations to say, how does what we're doing, Together, jointly, in places like Syria or Yemen, actually latch up to the longer term vision of stability. And maybe that's too high of an ideal. But I think it's important um, to try to do this. What's happened under President uh, Trump, unfortunately, is that I think we've just ceded a lot of that potential leverage. Uh, In Syria, we've allowed Iran and Russia to set the terms of some sort of peace uh, negotiation, and I actually don't think that's a a great recipe for long term stability. And in Yemen, we've basically continued to offer a blank check to partners like Saudi Arabia. So what I'm saying is probably more nuanced than, than is capable in a political or even policy debate. Here in Washington today, especially under Trump, is that we should actually give it a try to try to shape the actions of our partners um, um, and do it, you know, in a serious way. I don't, for a moment, think it's going to happen under President Trump. So it begs the question of then, okay, that we do we just fade back and then what will what will the outcomes be?
1: Yeah, I think I think you know, <clears throat> the, the the practical question is what's possible now, and you know, n- nothing under Trump probably is the. Real answer, but like say the next president isn't Trump. Um, what what could he or she do? And I, you know, I think uh, step back. I, I love hearing the phrase since that's the title of m- one of my recent policy analyses. So I'm I'm with you there. But um, to me, the um, the only way that the United States can really be a credible mediator or integrator or um, really play a a useful and non uh, counterproductive role in the Middle East is if it if it really does do what you said, which is uh, forego trying to control outcomes mm-hmm. because that is the nut of what the United States has been trying to do. It wants the right outcome in Yemen. It wants a specific outcome in Syria, although it doesn't even know what that is. Uh, it wants the right people in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and so on and so forth. And you know, in my reading of history, that is not something that any one country has the power to dictate. And trying to do so for the last 16 years most obviously has led to nothing but trouble yeah. and and a worse mess and so my hope would be that your strategy we could start down that path by just getting the heck out yeah. and saying guys we're not we're not trying to dictate anymore we of course we have preferences but we're not going to lean in on one side of these fights or another i think unfortunately i mean you might think yemen is a mess or syria is a mess but until we say look it's just not our call yeah i just i just feel like why does anyone there trust us
2: yeah i think that's um that's a fair point and the one place I would say um, we may disagree, but maybe not terribly too much, is that I think if the U.S. doesn't have a, a plan for stepping back or how it might even try to use its leverage, you could have outcomes like we've seen for the last four or five years in Syria, which some analysts would say, oh, well, it's contained. It's not our issue. It's over there. I would argue actually the strategic consequences to global security, to politics in places like Europe, politics even in our country about refugees, immigration, and things like this actually have their seeds in that, and if you look back you know, on things that I wrote. Um, Again, maybe I I, I sound a little too conflicted, but I hope I'm clear. I think in 2013-14, I was really hesitant and reticent about the U.S. getting involved uh, in places like that. But as the crisis continued to have a huge strategic cost, I think, uh, not only for the Middle East, but then for Europe and then uh, other places and had knock-on effects, and then the, the, the human costs, and this is where we may disagree, I felt like there was more that we could be doing on the margins. Again, I wasn't in favor of like a nationwide no-fly zone and things like this. But we got into a situation towards the end of the Obama administration who President Obama I think signaled in a strategic way sort of when he first went in, an era of new engagement. We're going to use diplomacy. And then by 2011, there was very mixed responses to the Arab uprisings. Um, And after a few months, it was clear sort of the authoritarian sort of backlash. We weren't going to do much about. Um, but then by the time we rounded the corner and more specifically to Syria, President Obama had promised a number of different things, different, different actors, and then I think quite cynically, did not, deliver on those promises, thus accelerating this crisis of efficacy of of the US and the Middle East. So we are where we are now. and my, my main point though is that I think if you just leave the field and abandon it without trying even in small ways to use your leverage with current actors like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and other things, it, it could actually get a lot worse. Um, so, it worth, it, it, there may be a period of war, uh, trying to work with and reassure allies on the one hand, but as a means to get leverage to shape their actions. Otherwise, the sort of carpet bombing and the things like this that we see every day from Russia uh, could even be more devastating. And it's not just the human costs. It's then what does that mean for global terrorism? Again, we need to keep that in proportion. What does that mean for the structure of, of, of you know geopolitics?
0: You know, I I think really the the interesting question, the most interesting question that this raises is – what do we conceive of as our interests yeah. in the region? Because you started with using the phrase um, "strategic interests," yeah, yeah. but then there's clearly a humanitarian element here. And, yes. uh, you know, and, and not to, not to pick on you about this, but it seems to me like again, this is a this is a real tension. How do we reconcile uh, a less military-focused approach, an approach that perhaps isn't uh, seeking to change mil- to change regional outcomes all the time, but that nonetheless includes this kind of mandate for? Say, Humanitarian protection for responsibility to protect and that kind of thing. It seems to me that those are very much in tension. Uh,
2: I think they potentially could be, but if you take, say, the new assertiveness of some of our uh, partners in the region and, and allies, and uh, this increased initiative uh, on the on their part, they're they're going to have an impact in, in some sort of way. By and large, if you look at places like Yemen, I think it's been negative. Um, And and it's in large part because of their actions and our unwillingness to use our leverage uh, with them. Um, So in the hypothetical where... You take Brian's solution as we, we actually sit down with them in a very serious and focused way and quietly say, we're not going to, rather than have Congress do this, have an administration say, we're not going to continue to underwrite and sign blank checks here. Obama tried to do that for maybe, I think, two or three months on Yemen in a small slice of, uh, towards the end of his administration. I actually think it could have produced uh, better outcomes. And I'm not saying, you know. and I think the whole categories uh, that we used to use for US foreign policy to debate, neocons or liberal interventionists. I'm not a liberal interventionist, but I mean I think they need to be redefined. And in my view as an American, you, you do need to not only talk about uh, interests uh, in, in a clear way, but then also there has to be a values component uh, to it. Otherwise we're seeding the field globally. To authoritarians and other other groups, and as I, I say in the in the region, we're actually giving them authoritarian uh, countries, some of our closest partners, a blank check uh, to reshape things in ways that I think are bad for us in the long run. I, I just <clears throat> I, I struggle
1: still, um, and I'm not saying I'm unconvincible, but I, <laughs> I struggle um, with with folks when when I hear them say we have interests. Um, and they tend to be a little vague about what those are or that we need influence in the region and – but I'm not exactly sure why or to what end. And you know, I think – what Emma was saying I think is, is really the, the crux of it, which is you know, if we had a, – a, we need as a country a clear agreement about a clear enumeration of what we're trying to get done there. Is it cheap oil? Is it uh, fewer people being killed by their governments? Is it peace between nations in the region? Is it to keep Iran in a box? Um, you know, I, To me, the United States is such a secure country. None of those things actually affect US national security almost at all and it's, it's hard for me to understand why those things would, would push us. Um, to go kill people or uh, sell or give weapons to other people to kill people. I just, those things are really important, uh, not good things. And I just, I need a really good reason to do them.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, it is uh, U.S. security is about protecting our homeland and our citizens. And um, you don't need to have the footprint that we have in the Middle East today. Um, You also don't need to simply go home, you know, and the the phrase that the military now uses of working by with and through partners, I actually think is the right model. But my main point is that we're not actually using any of this leverage um, to produce better outcomes. So um, I I think it improbable, like the U.S. is is unlikely for a range of reasons to leave the field completely. But but I think a, a sort of a gradual plan that says, look, we're trying to put in the building blocks where you guys are actually in control of your own situation and easier said than done, right? Like we've written in our report also about this idea of of a a security, um, a regional security compact, Arab NATO, if you will, people have talked about, easier said than done. But unless we're actually trying to use our tools towards some sort of longer term objective that it opens the door Mm -hmm. to to the US sort of uh, stepping back a bit then I think it could result in a, at a bitter, bigger cataclysm than, than what Syria produced uh, in the last four or five years. Yeah. To To what extent,
1: Brian, do you think that the American discussion about interests in, in the region is distorted by the fixation that the United States seems to have on terrorism? Because that that's one of the things that I sense is a go-to – um, you know, sort of blanket justification for the Yemens and the Libyas and the Syrias is that it, it's all about terrorism. And, and I think what I'm hearing from you is, um, you know that that's us a piece, but but you there are many bigger fish to fry. But it seems like the the terrorism thing is getting in the way.
2: Oh, absolutely. It dominates our our politics when we do pay attention to it, right? Um, um, And I guess what I'm—and it's sort of the problems, threats, and challenges frame that drive our policy, unfortunately. And this is going to sound so Pollyannish and unrealistic, but I actually think— Um, There are many opportunities uh, that the U.S. is missing when you think of the positive uh, success stories in parts of North Africa, Tunisia and other places where there's this – it has this distortionary effect. Like we are actually underinvesting in potential progress and success in places like Tunisia because we're overfunding – things like expanding our footprint in West Africa uh, for a military approach to defeat extremism. Whereas go back to, you know, this AEI project we're doing or the UN Human Development Reports, the building blocks for stability are, are things that actually we should be helping societies invest in educational systems and economic uh, systems that actually are competitive and then can get linked up to the grid. and That's where even in our discussion here, but then our policy discussion gets so fixated on, well, what do you mean by se- security integrator? And I mean security integrator in the broader human development sense because you know the waves of uh, uh, refugees that we've seen. I actually feel like we're on the, just the leading edge of it. If you combine climate change, other factors that drive uh, uh, problems, it's, it's, it's not like we can wall ourselves off from it. I, uh, Europe certainly can't, and I think in the long run, having a more holistic approach and building sort of political capital to do that uh, is, 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 I think, a fundamental challenge.
0: Well, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. Um, Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Um, And uh, thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld. If you like this episode, please consider writing us a review on iTunes. You can connect with us on social media using the hashtag FPPowerProblems. Uh, Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.